This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. Welcome to the Austin Chronicle Show. My name is Kim Jones, and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. In the back half of today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Chronicle Screen's editor Richard Whitaker about a disturbance in the Force, which is the new and honestly pretty disappointing Star Wars movie. But first, we're going to be discussing a more immediate planetary peril, and that is the climate crisis. My guests today hail from Texas Impact, the Austin-based interfaith advocacy organization, and they are just back from the United Nations Climate Change Conference. While there, Texas Impact interviewed a host of climate change experts and advocates, and the Chronicle was honored to in turn host those videos on our website. So we're going to start with me introducing the team. We have B. Moorhead, Executive Director of Texas Impact. And we also have uh, from the video production team, Robert Moorhead and Eric Graham. So B, let me start with you. Tell us about Texas Impact and what kind of work y'all are doing there and how that work inspired you to attend the climate conference. Thanks. So Texas Impact is a statewide interfaith organization that works on a variety of public policy issues uh, that are, we would describe as issues of broad social concern to uh, the range of mainstream faith communities, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, and beyond. Certainly in the past decade, maybe a bit longer, climate change has emerged as one of the top concerns for faith communities. That's not necessarily uh, well reported or well understood, but um, as as the uh, realities of climate change manifest in the world, they are impacting communities that um, American people of faith have concern for already. So migrants, people in developing countries, um, people people who have uh, who the faith community has historically ministered to, and I think that is one of the things that's really kind of brought climate change to the fore for faith communities is that it's not just an issue of, you know, we'd say it's not just an issue of polar bears, it's an issue about people. And this uh, this interest, this concern about climate crisis inspired you guys to attend the, this is an annual conference <laughs> that happens every year. This year it happened in Madrid, although I, I do want to point out y'all brought me some swag back and this says COP25 Chile 2019. <laughs> so there's a little bit of a story there. So it's actually, yeah, it's uh, people refer to it as a conference. It's actually kind of akin to a legislative proceeding. It's the United Nations annual uh, meeting where they make decisions about global climate policy. So it's the the conference of 196 nations. Um, and every year what they do is kind of move forward a global climate agenda. Um, the reason that we were there, this is actually the fifth year that Texas Impact has participated. And I'll tell you, and that it goes to why I'm sitting here with these two uh, gentlemen. The, the first couple of times that we went, it takes a while to kind of get your feet on the ground about the United Nations. It's a big place. But the more that we went, the more, and the more that we kind of had the experience of sitting in the rooms with the negotiators and things like that, the clearer it was that even though this is possibly the biggest policy issue that everyone in the world 
needs to at least have some idea what's going on. There's very little uh, consumer level information communicated out of it. So if you could imagine if the Texas legislature met all session and nobody really reported anything to the public about what was going on, nobody said, hey, you know, they're considering some pretty crazy stuff here. You might want to come down and talk about it. But that's what that's what the U.N. negotiations kind of are like. There's not that give and take with the public. So this year, early in the year, I started to think, you know, if we're going to go, nobody particularly cares that the faith community from Texas thinks one way or another on the global stage. I mean, that's, you know, that's pretty parochial. The best thing we can do is not go and try to, you know, try to lobby or something. It's to try to communicate. It turns out that's a really important role for faith communities all the time is being communicators. And actually, uh, a fellow Texan of faith and a much bigger climate expert than me, Catherine Hayhoe, is a finalist for Texan of the Year in the Dallas Morning News today for being a climate communicator. Mm -hmm. So I thought the best thing to do would be to get communications professionals and get them into the climate negotiations as media. And to do that, I had to have a partnership. And that's when I reached out to you all. Yes, which is a slightly strange uh, or just, you know, un- unconventional <laughs> email for us to get at the Chronicle of, of faith leaders reaching out saying, hey, you guys want to partner on something? Uh, <laughs> typically, the complaint against us is that we are... I don't know, godless commie hippies. So, but it turned out to be a very fruitful partnership, I think. I thought so too. And I don't know if you guys want to say anything about um, what it was like being there covering it. Well, and if I can interject, I think one of the great things about the videos that you guys produced on the ground is you took very complex uh, issues that I think a lot of people, when they hear about the specifics of everybody knows what the climate crisis is, I think, but they don't know what that exactly means. And you guys produced videos that really, um, in in short and, and, and interesting ways, really decoded some complex stuff the the decoder when we went we didn't really know what we were gonna do what we would find what kind of videos Mm -hmm. we would do initially we were anticipating sending videos through the internet to somebody here in austin to put things together for the chronicle but pretty early on b had this idea to have somebody explain the concept of loss and damage And then almost immediately she said, you know, we could make this a series of decoders, explainer videos, Mm -hmm. because there are so many things about climate, the climate emergency, which is now my my new term, right? They they say, don't call it climate change. It's climate emergency because it really is. Um, So many aspects of it that people who are concerned about it don't know about. I was a concerned climate change person. But I didn't. I'd never heard the phrase "loss and damage." I didn't know what um, ambition meant in the context of just transition. Uh, just transition. Um, there's there's so many things, and to have somebody who's been in the trenches for five, six, ten years, like some of the people we interviewed, to be able to say to them, "Okay, look into the lens and." Imagine you've just met this person at a cocktail party, and they're saying, "Like, well, what is this just transition about?" And to have them just take, spend three minutes explaining that aspect of it, um, for me, was super educational. And I, I assume that it was for anybody else who took the time to watch them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I think also it's I think a lot of us we know there's a massive problem and we feel this sort of we carry this generalized dread around with us at all times uh, and that something these videos helped me with was giving specific name to the things that were worrying me and then it's once you once you can identify it well then you start identifying solutions for it um, so you guys were on the ground you were you were in it what was the general feeling there was it was it hopeful or was it we're we're running out of time it was uh it was a little bit of both we actually did interviews with people at the beginning of the two weeks and then and uh at the end of the two weeks mm -hmm. and it was quite a contrast from the real shiny naive hopeful people going in and kind of the uh more concerned people coming out of it, at, you know, after two weeks, it, it kind of sinks in that it is really a climate emergency. I think uh, a couple of things I would want to really highlight, and we tried to send back dispatches, the video dispatches that would, would kind of point in this direction too. One of the things that, you know, so this is 25th, one of these climate negotiations, Every one of them has kind of a little distinctive flavor. The flavor this time was people are kind of near a breaking point. I mean, I think the negotiators themselves, it was the longest one ever. They went 44 hours over what the deadline was supposed to be, and they still didn't come up with a deal. And today, uh, the UN, uh, the, the woman, Patricia Espinoza, who's in charge of the whole thing, released a statement, and it was like, it wasn't happy. Mm. Um, it was, you know, it was like, geez, thanks for trying, you guys. But, but there were more people from what we describe as civil society. So, uh, people like us, people from the faith community, lot of youth, lot of grassroots people, a lot of indigenous, a lot of indigenous people. That's right. Who also are near? They're near a breaking point. There was a big protest. People got kicked out. Um, there there were uh it it had the quality of like people are kind of kind of losing patience with the process that's probably good that it's mm -hmm. because as long as people keep feeling like well we didn't get everything we wanted but we kind of did okay that blunts every year it has blunted the uh the urgency. I think what everybody probably left with this year was a real sense of urgency. And I'm glad to hear you say that the decoders helped because that that need for everybody and in the you know, from our perspective, American voters need to understand really what's at stake. That's what will make next year's cop be definitive, which was always what was needed. So this year was intended to be kind of a, like a cleanup year before 2020. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, I keep telling people, it was like a show that had a really bad dress rehearsal. Like, good. So that means the show will probably be really good. Sure. Work out all the kinks now. So th that is the takeaway that you, that the general community had was sense of urgency. We've reached a breaking point. Yeah. Next year is when it's. Yes. Yeah. Next year, yeah. there's been a leap into, into the future. And I think it'll be much more ambitious. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Next year is the year that the Paris Agreement is supposed to take effect. And this year was at the plan for the COP was to get Article 6 sussed out and put down on paper. And pretty much I think we can agree that it didn't happen at all. It just didn't. They just mm -hmm. didn't. Um, 
So in order for the Paris Agreement to move forward, Article 6 has to be worked out. And so, I mean, there is, there's the, the inter, er, intercessional thing right, on bond. You can talk about that because you know more than me. It's just that throughout the year, the U.N. continues to do work. So uh, the way that our Texas legislature, even when they're not in session, they're still meeting, they're still studying issues, stuff like that. That's what's going on. Like all year long, there's climate policy being worked on. And so the next climate negotiations are November in 2020 in Glasgow, Scotland. And I think you'll see peop- the the uh, the diplomats from around the country I and mean, around the world coming to Scotland with a lot of meat, a lot of, a lot of way forward. Mm-hmm. Probably not much meat since meat's one of the things that's causing climate change. <laughs> Fair point. The big question is, what are what is our country going to become? Well, the, I know? wanted to ask you about that. This is an international conference. Um, how did America fare there? Not great, I'm assuming. I we mean, won a lot of fossils. We won a lot of yeah, fossils. That's this right. Is the it fossil of the of the, the fossil day of the award. day. That's right. A long-standing tradition. Right. Um, usually, the United States wins one, maybe two. We won seven, maybe eight this time. Not a happy distinction. Not a happy for distinction. The, yeah. But we did not win the coveted colossal fossil. That award went to Brazil. So it was really the United States, Brazil, and Australia as kind of the team of bad actors. Mm-hmm. And it, it's uh, there are reasons that the United States should be in a different category than the other two. The other two, part of what was what made them such amazingly bad actors was they're undergoing catastrophic climate impacts right now and i mean the news today about australia is just worse and worse excuse me right now the united states is not necessarily in the throes of quite such catastrophic impacts um it's just that we have made this big issue about leaving paris agreement our negotiators so every country sends uh diplomats to negotiate some countries Elected leaders participate, too. In our case, the elected leadership didn't participate as much, although there was a cohort from Congress, from the U.S. House, led by Nancy Pelosi, that came at the beginning and did meet with our State Department folks. They also met with us. And can I just say, here's what it meant that the Austin Chronicle was at the climate negotiations. You had the only video reporters in the room for Nancy Pelosi's press conference from the United States. Wow. The only American video media yeah. there. So she so so there were people from Congress who came. There were some Senate staff who came later. Mm-hmm. But um our diplomats aren't partisan. And they they were really trying to do a credible job. I, it's a very tough spot for State Department folks to be in. There are people who've been working on this issue. They worked under under Bush. They worked on it under Obama. Now, I mean, it's so it's kind of. I guess I would say it's a little bit heartbreaking to watch the professional people trying to navigate this ridiculous political political situation that they're in. But yeah, we looked real bad. <laughs> 
Well, let's let's try to end this on a slightly more positive note, which is um, obviously I think the the biggest change any of us can make is to is to vote. Yep. Um, but on a more personal household to household sense, what do you recommend people do in order to try to do their part? Do you guys have anything you would? LEDs on your Christmas tree. LEDs. <laughs> That's what the New York Times said to do. Okay. To fix climate change. Yeah. Put yeah. LEDs well, on your Christmas every tree. Every little bit counts. On a very personal level, I would say over and over and more and more, year after year after year, the thing that comes up that people don't think about, they think about solar, they think about not driving as much, they don't think about what they put in their mouths. And food choices are a part of the equation that we make Everybody makes food choices many times a day, and every one of them is a moment when you could choose what the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, described broadly as the path of hope or the path of surrender. He said, I, I hope we don't look back at this time and say this is when, as a, as a global population, we chose the path of surrender and decided to just sleepwalk into a catastrophic future. I would say every time somebody gets ready to order in a restaurant, gets ready to make dinner, stands in the grocery store, they, in a tiny way, they can pick the path of hope or the path of surrender. So pick hope. Well, and I'll, I'll go even one step further than that. I was reading about uh, Amazon deliveries and the carbon footprint of that. So I think pretty much every waking moment people can choose the path of hope and it might be just a small thing but a lot of small things add up exactly so and i think educating yourself too is Education that is, is the, the way important. to get towards hope is to you know you won't feel like it's so massive and unchangeable you can figure out your own role in in changing things for the better so that's exactly right Thank you all so much for coming in and for partnering with us on this. We, we really fun. Yeah. We had a great time. That's great. Well, let's do it again next year. All right. So uh, if you go to austinchronicle.com forward slash AV, you can find all of the videos um, that Texas Impact produced. Uh, and you can also find out more about Texas Impact at www.texasimpact.org. Joining me now, a familiar voice, Screens Editor Richard Whitaker, who's here to talk about Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Hi, Richard. Hi, Kim. So, uh, Star Wars movies tend to come in threes, and this is the ninth feature film in the Star Wars uh, Skywalker saga, I guess we're calling it now. Uh, the franchise that launched in 1977, and this series capper uh, that we're going to talk about is the latest trilogy, supposedly the end of the Skywalkers. Tell me. That's pretty much what Lucasfilm has said, is that they're mm -hmm. sticking with the nine films that George Lucas eventually said he had that kind of vision for. Uh, unfortunately, when they took over uh, Lucasfilm from George Lucas, they went, hey, we have our own idea and we're going to throw George's out. Well, I have some bad news. <laughs> okay. It turns out they did not have an idea. It is blindingly clear, unfortunately, from the ninth film in the Skywalker saga that uh, they didn't know where they were going with this. Um if you saw The Force Awakens and uh, The Last Jedi, they kind of built up this idea that, you know, legacy and inheritance aren't really important. And the, the whole idea of Rey being nobody was 
core to this the is last the, Jedi. This is the lead of the, the, lead, of the, the latest the, trilogy. The, that... the lead Force-sensitive character who is being set up as, like, that she is the future uh, of, of uh, the Jedi, played by Daisy Ridley. Um, and on the other side, you have Kylo Ren, played by Adam Driver, who's the son of... Uh, uh, Han Solo and General Organa, who's gone to the dark side. And when we last saw him, he was leading the First Order. He was the only member of the dark side left, and he was quite happy with this. Well, it turns out, and we are told this in the clumsiest fashion possible in the opening moments, and you've seen this in the trailer, Palpatine's back. And it turns out he's been manipulating everything for years. This and is the... Uh, I feel like we... Uh, Emperor Palpatine. Uh, yes, well, this, this is one of these things. that Star Wars is so ubiquitous it's so part of the the common cultural dialogue we you know generations now have grown up with this saga but this is emperor palpatine who manipulated everything through the first six films and died at the end of return of the jedi and or so we thought so we thought and it turns out (laughs) not and he's just been off doing everything and this is so badly handled. And this is the start of a film of badly handled things. Yeah. And I, I want to interject. I, it, we're, we're not going to get into spoilers here oh, no, at all. It is free. only. It this is, is literally told to you in the first frames. It's yes. unbelievable how badly this is done. And particularly because it's something you mentioned to me uh, the other day when we came out of seeing the, uh, the press screening. This is a franchise that people pour over the details. And for J.J. Abrams to just go, things happened, it is... It seems so lazy and insulting to one of the biggest, most loyal fan bases that any work of fiction has ever seen. Right. And that, this is J.J. Abrams, who is the director who launched the Force this trilogy with Force Awakens. Uh, he sat out the second film uh, and then was brought back uh, to make this third film to, uh, I'm air quotes here, right to the course that a lot of people felt like the second film, which you and I both adore, The yes. Last Jedi, uh, made by Ryan Johnson. Uh, a lot of people felt like that went astray in some way. So he's back to right the ship. Um, and I think, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think we both kind of feel like he just drove the ship into the ground. Uh, I'm mixing sea metaphors here. I, yeah. No, I mean, he did. He sent it straight into the coastline at high speed, um, carrying a cargo container full of fan service. This film <laughs> is just, it's just moments from the other films just bolted together referenced homaged little pieces put back in what's really remarkable is that he he spent the force awakens introducing four new characters uh we've got ray who is the future of the force we've got kylo ren who's the bad guy we have finn played by john boyega who's kind of the the ingenue character um and then you have poe dameron played by oscar isaacs who's the the cocky pilot but he's the cocky rebellion pilot resistant pilot he's the military guy with a little bit of flash. And in this film, Boyega is basically forgotten. He has nothing to do. Uh, Poe Dameron is... It's very clear that he didn't... That J.J. Abrams didn't want to write Poe Dameron. And he pretty much becomes a different character that you'll recognize. And you'll go, oh, that's what you did with him. And it's everything is just... It's not everything old is new again. It's just everything old is back again and done not as interestingly. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I can see what he was trying to do because George Lucas believes in, in the power of mythology. That's always been very pivotal in the way he tells stories, you know, using iconic myths of revamping them in the way that the prequels are the Uther Pendragon story to the story of King Arthur. You know, it's it's the fall before the rise. 
And he understood the rhythms of this. And Ryan Johnson understood the rhythms of this. J.J. Abrams just thinks, well, if I repeat something that somebody else did before, that's the same. And it's not. And it's mm. so sad that I've got to sit here and say that this is the first of the major nine Star Wars films. This is legitimately the first bad one that's actually painful to watch. And not just in the storytelling way. The first hour is a mess. Mm-hmm. It's edited with a with a hatchet. <laughs> we, we came out. We, we couldn't remember anything that happened in the first hour when we came out. That's which true. Which is so disappointing. It is. I, I will say. I think that I'm I'm a little more positive on this film than you are. I'm definitely going to see it in the movie theater again. Uh, and I think the reason for that is 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 that I've had a lifelong relationship with this film, um, and, and so have you. And I think a lot of fans and critics both are having to reevaluate their relationship to Star Wars right oh, absolutely. now. Absolutely. Um, our, our colleague at the Statesman, Joe Gross, uh, published a, a really great personal essay, uh, 40 Thoughts About Star Wars in My Last 40 Years, something uh, to that effect. Uh, and I think, well, tell me a little bit about your relationship to uh, it. Star Wars, honestly, is why I ended up as a film journalist. Yeah. You know, I can still clearly remember the first time I saw it in 1978 because in the UK, we did not get it until 1978. So we spent six months hearing about this great film that opened in America. And it it just blew my world apart. And then reading interviews with George Lucas where he was saying like, oh, well, this bit was clearly influenced by Hidden Fortress. And I'm like, Hidden Fortress? Who's, what's this? You know, and went off and learned about Akira Kurosawa. You know, it, People forget that Star Wars, for a lot of younger film enthusiasts, kickstarted an interest in the history of film in the same way that Quentin Tarantino, a generation later, people would look at his films and go, oh, you know, who's Ringo Lam? Because Quentin Tarantino says, oh, of course, you know, his films influenced my work. And you'd, and you'd get that. They become these gateway films. And for me, the mythology of Star Wars, the optimism of it, the characters... Everything about it kind of built to me being interested in film and interested in film as a storytelling technique. And this just feels like it just didn't get it. It's so disappointing that nine films in, it just peters out in nothing when it has meant so much to me and to so many people. The original Star Wars films, you looked at them and you'd never seen anything like them. You know, they really were revolutionary in the term in terms of telling a science fiction story on that scale, and it wasn't just cheap Saturday afternoon stuff. Though it really was building to something, and you felt these are this is a grand epic story. And the prequels, whether you love them or hate them, basically went you. We're not going to give you exactly the same thing again. We're going to bring in you know elements of of a more courtois. We're going to make it look like the 1930s. It's aluminum and steel and beautiful and classic. And this is before the fall, so it was it wasn't what people expected. This is just if you went to a five year old and said, "What do you know about Star Wars?" They'd put half of this down. I've, I've seen people say that this is basically if, if you went to one of the most cantankerous Reddit threads that hated the Last Jedi uh, and took all the plot points they were demanding and turned them into a script. This is exactly what you'd get. Yeah, I think that this one wants to sort of satisfy everyone. Like you said, there's there's fan service is all throughout it. Um, I, that seems to be it. Sort of that was its north star. Is who can how can I not commit to anything uh, and try to satisfy everyone? And I, as a result, you get a film that just kind of is there. Yeah, I will say the one positive thing I can say is at least they put the proper round antenna back on the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> okay. My Falcon has a round antenna. I'm sorry, I'm old-fashioned. 
All right. Well, if you want to hear more about Richard Whitaker's thoughts about Star Wars, and we know everybody's going to go see it anyway, and and absolutely, like I said, I'm going to go see it again, too. Uh, But you can find his review uh, in this week's issue of the Austin Chronicle, available on stands and online now. And you can also see uh, what all of the Austin Chronicle film critics thought about the year in film. Uh, It's our end of the year issue. And relive everything that 2019 was the good and a lot of the bad so a quick thanks to my guests today uh in addition to richard whitaker we also had b moorhead robert moorhead and eric graham and thanks also go to our engineer evan hearn and to kevin Curtin and jonas wilson for writing our theme music and finally thanks to you listeners for tuning in to the austin chronicle show we'll see you again next week